Welcome to Self-Release Songs. My name is David Garrick. So normally I would give you a little message, but we're just going to kind of hop in to today's episode. Uh, in my travels and my time covering all kinds of things from albums to live shows, it's a known thing that I see tons of live music, like more than probably anyone you've ever met. And over the years, there's always been this group of people that I felt like artists don't understand. A lot of times even management doesn't understand or venues doesn't understand. And that's photographers. Live music photography and music portraits are unbelievably important for an artist. And, you know, this podcast is about voices, and I say that a lot. It's also about people's stories. If you do a million interviews, and I've been lucky to interview all kinds of people, artists I admired like The Breeders or Wire or Angel Olsen, artists that I wanted to talk about other artists in their era, in the era when they began, like Ian Asbury of The Cult. The reality of it is, is that the older you get, the more you only get to where you want to talk to who you want to talk to. And it didn't matter if I was at a decent-sized room or a really small room. I kept seeing the same photographers over and over and over. And in life, you want to be around and surround yourself with people that are like-minded, have similar interests, and in my case, like the same music. Um, but what I didn't get is this one guy I would see, Daniel Jackson, was not far from my age at all. In fact, tonight I realized he's a year younger than me. But, you know, I'm not used to seeing people my age. It shows. I figure most of the people my age, or in his case, our age, they're at home with kids because they got to get up early. They can't be hanging out at a 250-cap room at 1130 at night on a Tuesday. Daniel Jackson might be one of the most impressive photographers I've ever seen. I think he also has one of the most amazing life stories, how he came to music, how he became a photographer, how short of a time he's been a photographer. On my side, he's shot some of the best photos I've ever been attached to for concert reviews. I told him this tonight and when we recorded the episode, and I believe this. In the late 90s, I caught at the drive-in, and I did not know who they were uh, when I was introduced to seeing them. I went to go see the bands they were opening for. And in 40 seconds, I felt like probably every guitarist in the room felt when Hendrix played for the first time in London, holy shit, what am I seeing? At the drive-in was like watching a heart attack. Just insane energy, passion. And I really did not like that reunion record they put out a couple years ago, but I had Daniel Jackson shoot them in a large-scale room, 300, I mean, 3,500 capacity, and... The photos he took reminded me of that energy when I saw them 20 years ago. And there's something to be said about that. Um, he shot portraits of people like Margot Price and John Prine. Uh, he has a new book out, uh, and it's not really his book, but he did do the photography in it. It's called 111 Places in Houston That You Must Not Miss. And he talks a little bit about that book and how he got involved 
And I think this is a really wonderful episode because not only is he the first non-musician to ever be on this show, but he's also integral to helping artists because he works so closely with artists. He would admit what I've been telling people for years is that you got to have a ton of great photos because if someone like me wants to write about a single or a video or an album or a tour, you need to have photos to represent it because we all live in an Instagram age and no publication wants to run the same photo 10 times. Uh, he's an invaluable source and every artist in Houston should look him up, listen to this episode and hit him up about portraits because I've never seen a guy be able to do live what he does in a portrait, which is to capture the artist's essence. The way he goes about shooting a live show, he knows more about that artist on that tour than probably anybody else in the room that's not tied to the band. And when he shoots a portrait, he seems to be able to find something about who they are as people and pull it out of the photos. I think he's an impressive guy. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. So now here's Daniel Jackson. So where are you from? Are you from Houston? I am. I actually was born in Spring Branch Hospital, which is like maybe three miles from where I live now, which is weird. Because oh, that's strange. It's completely torn down. It's a lot. It's probably going to be developed into condos or whatever. But yeah, I was born here and raised in uh, Crosby, which is a uh, eastern suburb, right on Lake Houston. And you lived there. I lived there from 1970, aging myself, 1976 uh, through. I moved out when I was 20 years old. Okay. And that was obviously to go to college. It was not. <laughs> really? No, no. I uh, was working at Sears and Roebuck in uh, Baytown. And okay. And my friends came up to me and said, hey, we're moving out of our parents' house. And uh, we're moving to Clear Lake. I said, where's Clear Lake? <laughs> That's how kind of small town I was. And so we went and we looked at three apartments. And we selected the apartment with the basketball court. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And walking distance to a um, Waffle House, and that's where we ended up. Okay. And so I went and transferred Sears and Roebuck to the one in uh, Clear Lake, whatever that mall is called now. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, and I ended up working for that company for six years, I guess. Wow. And I, so I was doing that, and I met my first wife there. And I at said, Sears or in Clear Lake? At Sears. Okay. And in Clear Lake. And uh, so that kind of changes your life. And so at that time, I guess I was, what, 23, 24 years old. And I said, well, I'm not going to make any kind of money working at Sears, even though it's a terrific job. I love it. It was like a commission type yeah. thing. So you had competition with your buddies to sell a treadmill or tre sell a mower or whatever. And uh, so um, I went and entered uh, Lee College in Baytown and ended up, you know, working at uh, Sears and then ending up getting a certificate in drafting. When I got the certificate in drafting, I got the yellow book, uh, yellow book, yeah, yellow pages out, yellow pages out, 
and I wrote down every company with the word engineering in it within like a 20 mile radius. I wrote it down on a piece of paper and I drove to these addresses. And I did that for two days. And I did uh, the last day, I walk into this office and uh, it's a time where you can still smoke in your yeah. office building or whatever. And I walk in, say hello, hello. And I see a bald head sitting in front of a computer and he's kind of just sitting there with a scar in his mouth smoking. And he cusses and he says, hey, can you run this AutoCAD thing? And so I ended up going and working for him. Oh, wow. And so I got my first drafting job. He said, listen, I can't pay you much. Don't quit your job at Sears, but come work for me. And so I got that job and I ended up just sort of going to school at night at Lee College and uh, building my career up that way. And so after many, many years, of doing that, um, I end up at U of H, finishing a bachelor's degree, um, and uh, yeah, I'm now living in, like I said, a few miles from where I was born, which is strange. So I knew the Sears thing, but I thought maybe it was earlier than that. But I do like how you said, where's Crew Lake? I would assume you had somewhat of a sheltered existence very out much, there. Very much so. Right? I mean, my existence was church. So I grew up in a family that went to a Southern Baptist church, which was just in the front of our neighborhood. And so I was there every, every time the doors were open. So that's basically Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday evenings. And then if you were doing any level of youth group or something like that in your teens you were there as well and this is not a mega church right this is oh, like no. a regular it's church like 500 max that was what that building i just talked to my dad a couple days ago actually and he said we had 120 at sunday service and that's a good you know a good sunday okay and i mean growing up like that were you limited to Kind of everything. I guess everything is church and school and play sports or anything like that. Yeah. Well, I did. I went to Christian school my entire upbringing. So, but I was in sports. Uh, everything from volleyball to basketball. I was the lead bench player for every last team that we we had. So. Okay. Six foot one, uh, you know, uncoordinated team basically. Yeah. Uh, so definitely not a superstar in the Christian uh, school league or anything like that. But I didn't grow up that way. My dad was pretty much agnostic, and my mother was religious. And yeah. We got to decide if we wanted to go to church anymore when we were 13, and we had to prove why we shouldn't have to go. And So I, I don't know a lot about that. I mean... How did you get into music? Was anybody in your family a musician? So my, so my mom played piano for the church. And okay. she, my uh, grandfather was actually a music minister at Wood Forest Baptist Church. So that kind of musical thing has always kind of flowed through my family. Um, I, I was not allowed to listen to secular music. The only secular music I listened to was Beach Boys. And anything that was on, like, uh, I don't know what it's called now, but the oldies station sure. there. Um, and so growing up, listened to all those kind of doo-wop groups. Um, and, but on occasion, they would play a song by the Doors. And so they played play the song by the Doors, and my mom would either turn it off or turn it down. And I was like, what is that? 
And I think that that was my first sort of like entry into quote unquote secular music. It was like, why is mom turning down the radio? Why is this not acceptable? Right. Um, and uh, that kind of got my interests way before they did the, um, I can't remember. Uh, what movie is that in the 90s where they did The Doors with uh, the Doors Val movie? Kilmore yeah, yeah and all that yeah. Um, well I mean obviously your mom didn't know about what Brian Wilson went through yeah no no we got in an argument one time because she called the music I was listening to in the 90s drug music and I was like okay so let's talk Elvis, one of your heroes, and let's sure. talk the Beach Boys. And oh my God, what? Yeah. <laughs> and she got super upset with me and shut that conversation down really quickly. But yeah, I mean, yeah, there's videos of... out there of Elvis singing fast and the drummers trying to get him back to the original time. Right. But he's so speed sped out that it's just and the drummers over there like, what the hell's going on? You know? Yeah. I mean. Uh, he de- happened, he yeah. definitely struggled. I still feel like I had that connection with my mom. We went to, uh, we did a road trip uh, to Nashville and Memphis, and we did the uh, Graceland thing. And I was texting her photos of Graceland and things like that. I still feel that connection, but absolutely, she, I think you kind of romanticize your heroes during that era. Sure, sure. Right? Beatles, uh, uh, the Stones, the you know the Elvises of that time, and think they're they're clean cut. They're good guys. They were sure. Ed Sullivan. They're cool. Sure. Yeah, my dad listened to country music and blues music, so I was the only kid that was probably seven that really wasn't super aware of Michael Jackson. My older brother was because they had their own show. The Jacksons had their own show or cartoon or something in the seventies. Yeah. And I did want to go see them when they played at the Astro, Astrodome for the Victory Tour. But I was not super aware of Beat It or anything. It, I caught it at the end of it because I was obsessed with, like, blues music, you know? Yeah. I'm not, I wasn't like, I'm going to learn guitar and learn how to play it. But there was just something romantic about it. My dad grew up near Navasota. He knew Mance Lipscomb, you know? He knew all these guys when they because yeah. there was like a sharecropping circuit he saw a lot of blues and country artists before they blew up so you know you have a tale to go along with it it makes the music so much more interesting but you say you weren't allowed to listen so I would assume teenage years there's a push-pull between you and your parents on what you're listening to absolutely so I went to Christian school like I said and so during our lunch breaks or whatever there would be these kids basically rapping at the table and doing their beatboxing things to Beastie Boys and uh, whatever it was at the time. And I had zero clue what that was. So one Christmas I can remember, I asked for a rap CD. I did just generic, I'd like a rap CD. And so my mom actually asked the pastor of the church to buy me this rap CD. And they went to the Christian bookstore and bought, I can't remember the artist's name, but bought the CD. And when they handed it to me, they, it was an open CD because they had to go and listen to it to make sure that wow. the things were acceptable to hand to, I guess at that time I was 16, 15, 16 years old or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I and I totally just kind of, I listened to it a couple times and discarded it because it wasn't really what I was hearing at the lunch table. Right. Right? Um, that was kind of my outside... You know, when people would, you know, going back to Cali and those songs were out there, 
I had no idea what that meant, but I knew that the kids in the school thought that that was cool. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be a part of that, I suppose. Yeah, the Beastie Boys were the gateway. I think this year or last year, Paul's Boutique had an anniversary. Mm, right. And when it came out, my friend Jason and I drove around in his used Celica Supra. <laughs> And we had we each had the cassette. The cassettes were colored. Yeah. And played it nonstop. I have that album memorized legitimately. I to this day I live by a lyric which is more Adidas sneakers than a plumber's got pliers. You know, like I I literally like just dove so heavy into it and that introduced us to Ice T and Run DMC and Young MC and uh Ghetto Boys and NWA and all of that, I would assume you weren't allowed to listen to any of that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, and so when I became of age to drive, or I knew somebody that could drive, uh, we went and bought tapes at Walmart. That's really all that Crosby had was the Walmart. And so I remember the very first tapes that I bought, it was 93, I suppose, my senior year of high school were uh, 10 from Pearl Jam, Nevermind from uh, Nirvana, and I bought uh, Gary Stewart's Out of Hand, which is, is a country album. It's the best, in my opinion, is the best drinking country album of all time. There was a thing called 610 Radio Country at yeah, the time, I remember that, yeah. and AM Radio, and we would listen to that. It just felt like something otherworldly. I know that the other people have had this experience with maybe cooler radio. No, but, but I get that, yeah. When I found 16 Radio Country out in Crosby, that kind of like opened my mind up to different music. My dad listened to Don Williams and Grandpa Jones and all that, and I dug that, but I hadn't really understood the whole like rebel country kind of thing. Sure. And so that was the first entry. The second entry to uh, understanding that there were other music out there besides Beach Boys and that yeah. was listening to Rice Radio, right? When I got the car, I'd turn it on Rice Radio, and it was music that I'd never, ever heard right. before. And so I got kind of obsessed with it, actually, and taped shows. Yeah. And at that time, when the internet was just sort of getting started, they would post what those songs were and so I would just have collections I would play those tapes wow for my friends which is really really uh, I watched a documentary a while back about uh, there's these two uh, hip hop DJs in uh, New York and I can't remember their names right now but it's okay um, they hip hop artists would come in there and say hey I used to tape your show because I could not find this music anywhere else and I really connected with that and yeah. I had such a hunger and a thirst for music. It was all that I thought about, all that I did uh, outside of sports in Christian school. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird how music is such a connector, right? He's been accused of stuff since, but I met Africa Bombada twice. Right. And both times, I was nervous as hell. Because this is a guy that took craft work and right. inserted it into rap music. I mean, in dire straits. I mean, so much stuff where you're just like... So that approach to not being afraid to use music outside of your genre or outside of what is acceptable for you, like I think that what my upbringing gave to me was a gift of not really knowing that 
this quote unquote wasn't cool or this quote unquote was not I never kind of understood what the outside of listening to those kids rap in Christian school what was cool so I would just listen to and absorb absolutely everything and I feel if that's the same thing with Bombada that he kind of took it and said this is a good beat I don't care where it came from I'm taking it and making something completely new right and I mean it is this happened maybe I, I told you this before we started about the Stooges got back together and Iggy and I, I love Funhouse. I could give a shit about the rest of their catalog. But Mike Watt was playing with them, and I almost knocked Iggy over because I was like, holy shit, it's Mike Watt. Yeah. I mean, Minutemen, Double Nipples right. on the Dime was like my Bible for a long time. You know, it's weird because the way you grew up and the way I grew up was different. And it's funny because I'm, I used to think forever I was being maligned because my parents cut up a dead candy shirt I had, you know? Right. And here you are telling me you had to go to these great lengths they just to hear They burned music. my E.T. VHS tape because there's cussing in the movie E.T. Wow. <laughs> I had to rebuy those cassettes. I hid those cassettes in a very small, zip, zipped up thinner under my bed all the way back. One of those case logic mom, cases? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I had the 10 tapes or whatever that I would play in the car and she found them and she burned those tapes and I rebought those tapes and she burned those tapes. So it's, it, it didn't make me like, I don't feel like that was a rebellious thing. I just felt like I was drawn to it to the point where it didn't matter if I got in trouble listening to it. Right. That makes sense. I mean, it's, yeah, it's definitely a completely different existence than what I'm used to. I mean, so when did it, you get out of the house. Right. And obviously that stops. She's not coming over to your apartment where exactly. you're paying rent and <laughs> burning your stuff. Exactly. So I get out and probably the first month we go to a party and we go to a party and, the, and we end up hanging out in sort of an a house that is uh, outside it's like almost like a shed I guess but it's just full of antiques and crap and so we're watching uh, a video my mom would not be proud to watch uh, Dennis Leary's No Cure for Cancer uh, comedy comedy act yeah, with the right? song Asshole on it yeah <laughs> yeah we're watching that and I'm just I can't take my eyes off the stack of records that's in the corner and it's a stack of records probably like four feet high and I just asked the host, I said, what are these records? Are, you, know, um, is, you know, they have price tags on them, are they for sale? She said, yeah, my mom just shut down her thrift store and she might be interested in selling them. So I end up getting basically the classic rock Bible from her mom for maybe 20 bucks. Wow. So literally all the Black Sabbath, Led Zepp, you know, all those albums, ACDC, the things I'm not supposed to listen to. Right. Um, I would never have known. Yes. I don't know. Uh, I could go on. But all that was sort of like, all right, here you go. Yeah. How are you going to, you know, what are you going to do with these? Because at the time I didn't have a turntable, but I knew my mom and dad did. And it was just sort of in storage. And so I asked them for that turntable and they gave it to me. And I just, again, absorbed those records. Right. And it's like, it, it was in, I probably was, well, I was 20, I was turning 21 at the time. So just listening to the records, the Bowie records, the Janis Joplin records that were very foreign to me. I'd never heard those songs ever. Yeah. 
it was fresh. It was on fresh ears. And so I just, you know, I know people talk about, well, I have this record collection from way back when. You know, I knew that, you know, CDs were huge at the time, and I couldn't really afford that on Sears dollar. So I would actually go to pawn shops and thrift stores and buy records for a dollar to three dollars because that was the cheapest medium available. Yeah. You know, every car had a cassette deck in them. So cassettes were still fifteen dollars. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And if, I was you, just, if you didn't live near a Sam Goody. Oh, hell no. You know? Yeah. yeah. No, that's true. Now I was going to Half Price Books in Clear Lake. One um, of the best Half Price Books ever. Yeah. And I was really just is. picking up three dollar records like gangbusters and just like i said absorbing buffalo springfield and getting into neil young i had no idea about neil young yeah which to me you know that music is rebellious in a way but how would that be considered secular music you know it's just well i'll say this so i didn't get introduced to so much of that because my mom was into don't wrong i knew who sam cook was when i was eight and curtis mayfield my mom liked soul and r&b And she's a person that snuck out to see Elvis, snuck out to see uh, Little Richard and my racist grandfather. She told me what he said. I'm not going to repeat it, but it was a completely different time. You know, my mom went and saw the Shirelles, all kind of people. My dad saw all these country artists and blues artists. And so that's what we grew up with. But I do remember getting told... I don't know about this that you're listening to. I guess they, they heard one of the Ghetto Boys. It was probably the first. <laughs> it's not the first actual first. It's the first one, the one that Rick Rubin remixed. Ghetto Boys record, and they were not. They weren't about that at all. Yeah. But they really didn't like the imagery of Dead Kennedys. They didn't like. They didn't understand what the Misfits were. I would not argue on the basis of Misfits being good. It was just, we were skateboarding, and that's what everybody listened to, the cramps. My parents thought the cramps must be horrible music, and it's like rockabilly, you know? Right. It's <laughs> so far from horrible, you know? Uh, did you, you, your parents obviously did the best, you don't have like a grudge against them over there. No, that. absolutely not. Like I said, I think that they, it kind of set me up, inadvertently set me up for success in sort of discovering my own thing. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. Um, I, I don't, I definitely don't because music was always a part of our household. Yeah. Uh, and mom is still that way. Music will still be on in their house always. Yeah. So. And I mean, it's, they they come to parenthood with what they've got. You're not oh, an only child. You have a sister, your sister's younger. I have younger. a sister. She is. Yeah. yeah. Probably the same thing, you know. I would assume that there was stuff she wanted to listen to that she didn't get to listen to. Right, but I, I think at that time, when you have your parents, the first kid, you're trying to be perfect. The right. second kid, you're like, okay, I've been through the war. I'm, I know what's cool. You know, I know how to, to operate. And so I think my sister was lis- listening to Michael Jackson and all those other artists that were on the radio because they probably switched from... You know the oldies station to sure. maybe Nix uh, Mix ninety six point five or whatever. Ninety nine point one. Yeah, and and you know that music was not inadvertently sexual or inadvertently loud. I think loud is the biggest key here. Yeah, I can remember bringing home like a Chemical Brothers CD. I thought that was safe because there's no words yeah. to it. But my mom felt that there was a spirit related to that music that was maybe darker 
than she would like in her household, and I respect that, but it's just like, I don't really know what the target is here. I can listen to Petra, or I can listen to whatever Christian, uh, I mean, I probably the first concert I ever went to was in uh, at the rodeo, and I probably saw Petra. But in that same year, my grandfather worked in the oil industry and was given free tickets. And we went and saw little Joe La Familia, and he brought out Willie Nelson. And so I know that 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 kind of like it turned the page for me as a a small kiddo to kind of understand the breadth, I guess, yeah, of of music where I was just getting a little bit, a little taste. All right, okay. I know our God is an awesome God, but there's got to be more right out there. I mean, my mother was in love with Julio Iglesias, and because of yeah. that, <laughs> that's how I got introduced to Willie Nelson. My dad had the Willie Nelson records, but his old records, that's he funny. looked like Alfred E. Newman on the cover of them. You know? yeah. Like, what is this? And yeah. just not even open it, because it was just you know country records that look like a portrait done in Olin Mills that you carry right. in a locket, and then it has like, this grand country titling on it. It was whatever. But... I mean, I knew who he was because of that Julio Iglesias song. I don't like that song. What is it? All the girls I've loved before. But it puts you in a good headspace for Redheaded Stranger and all of that. What a crossover, though. I mean, to Willie Nelson's uh, credit, bringing in that. I agree. And, and we've kind of talked about Rick Rubin a couple times during this. I'm listening to the Broken Record podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But, man, what a treasure trove of just discussions with him and other artists that he's worked with. I feel like that he's bridged the gap between so many different genres. Yes. Yeah, given like, us. I have a little trouble because of how the Beastie Boys got treated by Rick. Yeah, um, you know, but and a couple of other little things, but I would agree with that. I mean, he did do the Beastie Boys. He did do Johnny Cash. He did do a, a lot of people. I mean, his his breadth of work is insane. Sure. Uh, I don't like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but he made <laughs> probably their best record uh, with Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I mean. And I was into it at the time. I saw him at Lollapalooza at Fort Bend County Fairgrounds. But I, you know, as you're getting into music and you're growing and your friends like one thing and you're kind of inadvertently into that too, it's not until you find your own voice. So when you start to find your own voice, what was the first artist you remember loving so much that you're like, if this came to town, I would go to see it? That's a really good question. Um... Because like I said, I felt like I was drawn to the doors because my mom wouldn't listen to that. And I did spend quite a bit of time with that band. And of course, by that time, they were gone. Right. Um, It was not anything that I could see. Um, Like, as an example for me, the police, I love the police so much. I said, wow, if they ever got back together, I don't care how much it costs. Right. I paid $600 to see the police get back together and kind of fumble through the first couple songs that they hadn't even practiced for the tour but I I was glad I went so don't you think that part of what so you you get this you get this war chest of classic rock right and 
how did you go from there to like Fugazi and all that kind of stuff? I don't. So that only came through Rice Radio. So I was taping those shows and listening to all that weird, you know, King Missile and uh, Dead Kennedys, all that came from Rice Radio. Um, but I feel like knowing, so coming from a country music and oldies genre, so a few of those records in there would be Kenny Rogers and Jerry Jeff Walker. So take Jerry Jeff Walker for instance. So I take Jerry Jeff Walker's album and uh, I listen to it and then I go and look at those artists because most of what Jerry Jeff had done, he's doing covers. And right. so I find Guy Clark through that. Okay. Go dig into Guy Clark. At that time, I was playing guitar. Me and my friend Sean Shane would go uh, all around town to all these Evans Music City. We'd go torture these sons of guns in the music stores by playing guitars as loud as we could until so they would just basically ask us to leave. Yeah. And then we would go and play guitar in a bar, in a... Um, We'd bring acoustic guitars to parties. We were the most unpopular kids <laughs> of that time. So the, the most, um, we went to a bar uh, that was attached to a uh, motel across from Exxon Mobil in Baytown. And in that bar, I'm sitting there plucking away poorly, by the way, on this acoustic guitar that I'd just gotten. And a trucker walks in, he's listening to me, and he says, hey man, can I, can I play that? And I said, all right. And so he plays a song, and I'm like, what is that? And he says, it's John Prine. And I'm like, who's John Prine? And so from that interaction, I go back to my pawn shop, and I go buy Bruised Orange by John Prine. The great that, record. That tape changed everything for me, and was sort of like a, a conduit avenue to find so many other artists that were inspired by that man and his I don't know fast forward to 2020 or it was 20 what 2018 when I end up taking photos of him at Newport Holt um, it's just like that has been along you know John Prime Tom Petty those artists have been the soundtrack for everything for me and looking into their lives and how they kind of you know John has, he decided, you know, I was on a major label and decided I'm going to start my own label, oh boy. And having that kind of entrepreneurial spirit definitely uh, is attractive to a person like me. Sure. Tom Petty from coming from Florida, driving all the way to LA and just basically pitching to a bunch of people with a few songs and ending up with a record deal is just a inspirational American story that I don't think is seen when you end up being you're introduced to an artist at their uh, height of success. Yeah. If you're not a person like me and don't dig back to where you come from, you know, you might lose. Like, well, you know, he was built by a record company or all that. That's absolutely not true. Right. And so I feel like it, it speaks to me in two ways. It speaks to me as a as a business-minded person, and it speaks to me as a music fan that I would basically do anything to support and love on bands 
to make them a success. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I it, you went you went further than. I mean, I, I did go down that route where I'm like, oh, what is this? Oh, this is a cover of this. Um, I knew the song ain't talking about love because I have an older brother. But when the Bostones covered it, I would tell friends, oh yeah, that's a Van Halen song. And they're like, no, it's not. And they'd look it up like, oh my God, it is, you know? But yeah, I mean, I think Bob at Vinyl Edge, when they were on the north side, I was buying, I, I went from Minor Threat to Fugazi because someone said, oh, well, they have a new band. It's called Fugazi. And the first record I bought was Steady Diet of Nothing, which I hated. I know a lot of people love that record, but I just never got into it. The next one I bought was Killtaker. And when I bought it, Bob said, oh, you know, next time you come in, I'll show you a record you have to buy. Right. And next time I come in, he goes, so those guys at Fugazi all love this band. Go listen to this. And it was Pink Floyd. And then I went back and bought Chairs Missing, which I can't believe that got to even come out on a major label, much less come out because it's so different. And 154 after that. And then that introduced me to television and all these other things. But it was all at the suggestion of either a close friend, Ted, or this guy Bob, you know, where they just kind of were, well, this is what the, this band likes, you know, and it's been cool having the position I have where I can talk to Ian Asbury of the Colt, and we're on the phone for an hour and 30 minutes of us just talking about Wire, you know, because when they were Southern Death Cult, they toured with Wire. But how did you start making these leaps of faith? I mean, because it's a leap of faith to, you, you're listening to stuff on, like you're listening to stuff on Rice Radio, you're not buying all of it. Like you didn't go no, buy. Absolutely not. And so at that time, I was still going to pawn shops, and I was going to one particular pawn shop so much that the uh, person behind the counter would hold CDs for me. Wow. And would say, "Hey, I know what you've been buying. This is related to it." Oh, that's And I cool. would end up with Bad Company. I didn't know who Stevie Ray Vaughan was. You know, I. You know that wasn't in the stack of records sure. that I bought from that party. So he would kind of expand on things. I, I don't remember his name. I I should have. It's uh, okay. There's know. a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I really feel like that that kind of vibe is what you and I share. It's like, hey, I know you like this, but you're really going to dig this. And I think that's what what it comes down to. And I really hope that continues with the music fans of today. Yeah. Is I, I, that. I'm not going to say who it is, but I was taking a drive to Austin, and someone was with me who was younger, and they're like, now what do I need to know about this band? I was like, well, all this. And then about two weeks ago, I saw on their Instagram story, they posted one of the records. Yeah. And I thought, that's so good. They went and found what of it they liked, and then they posted a thing about another band, and I said, oh, you know, these are their best two records. This yeah. one was produced by this person, and it has this guy from Radiohead on it. And it's just, yeah, you're trying to... I came back to music because I related a band to Fugazi. This kid turned around and said, who's Fugazi? And I, my friend got mad. And I was like, well, what year were you born? <laughs> He's like, oh, I was born in like 98. I'm like, so he was three when they broke up. How would he even know who they are? Right, absolutely. And so it, that, I kind of feel like that's the most important part of music is sharing what something is and why it's important you know? it's everything it's everything there's so many you can build a Spotify playlist you can go on there and you can write about music all day long but if you don't have that personal connection with somebody that you trust 
the guy behind the counter at the pawn shop, the guy at the record store, whatever, you're not going to like follow through. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that that's really it's still a word of mouth kind of thing. It, it's once a week something cool happens, and it's been that way for seven or eight years. Yeah. This week it was I wrote I compared an artist to Mark Almond and I get a message on Instagram of like this song's great I'd never heard of Mark Almond I looked him up I've heard his music I didn't even know who Soft Cell was right and I'm like that's rad I wish I'd picked a better artist but I mean <laughs> but, but it's still <laughs> like cool. Mark Soft Almond's Cell. great but I mean yeah. and, and I mean it was the same with comparing a band to Pulp last year and this kid was like I'd never even heard of Pulp I'm like oh check out all these bands and gave him right. like 30 I think bands. it's just not not taking uh, anything for granted uh, as far as, you know, coming at it not as like, you should know this young person, but right. going in there and saying, hey, you're listening to this. And I'm, I'm doing that, or uh, my girlfriend and I are doing that with our daughters now. It's, it's sort of like trying to identify with what they're listening to and sort of helping them walk back. And at some point in their lives, I'm hopeful that they, if they love music, they will go and kind of do that kind of journey that I did. Sure. Just sort of a weird roundabout. I have a lot of blind spots, but... I think that you love music because your mother introduced you to music. I feel that way. I feel that way. I, feel, I saw how passionate my mom was about... I'll never forget when Marvin Gaye died and when John Lennon died. And my dad, I've only seen him cry four times. Once during seeing E.T. in the theater. <laughs> when E.T. died. Yeah. The day John Lennon died, the day Marvin Gaye's father killed him, right. and for one of our relatives when they passed, but it, it no, I'm sorry, the shuttle, the space shuttle Challenger, Challenger. Uh, yeah. explosion, um, and he's probably cried at other stuff, and I just didn't realize it, but it hit me how hard it was, how affected they were by John Lennon, by Marvin Gaye, that it broke them up like that, you know? Um, Bowie is the only one that I've really... I couldn't even listen to Black Star until maybe about three months ago. I finally went and listened to it again. Because every time I would just start to... When that song, when it breaks to that middle part, I just I turn it off. I just start getting all teary-eyed. Sure. So, sure. Um, so you've, you're now introducing all this stuff. Where does photography come in? Much later. I guess I got a smartphone... Okay. <laughs> the, the crappiest smartphone ever. It's like an Android phone. And I was just, I was always going to shows. Um, what was the first non-rodeo type show you went to? I went to um, see, friends of mine asked me to go with them to um, The Abyss. Okay. And uh, I really didn't know what bands were playing. It was Machine Head and some other band. Okay. So I'm this dorky Christian school kid uh, with a group of friends of mine we're standing front row and the first band comes on nobody kind of reacts or whatever machine head comes on and I get cold caught lose oh, my whoa. glasses there's a mosh pit that kind of thing and I just end up uh, basically like retreating to the back near to the water coolers back there and just drinking water the entire night until my friends finish yeah um, and we drive home and that was my kind of experience, first experience with like live music was that I'm in trouble with mom because I lost my glasses. Right. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, that was it. Um, but something in that show and seeing the energy and feeling the energy of that show just was super attractive. Yeah. And uh, I don't know where the gap was between that Machine Head show and the next was, but it's been a continual thing to where I've been in audiences forever. And in the early stages of that, I was very attractive to, you know, Americana music. So I spent a lot of time at, um, you know, Mucky Duck, the uh, Old Quarter, the, you know, I'm, the, I'm kind of the youngest person in the crowd at all these festivals and folk things right, right. right everybody there is you know a part of i guess the last part of the armadillo um, thing in austin or yeah. whatever and you know i'm just being introduced to all these artists and seeing steve Fromholtz at uh, anderson fair i'm like what in the world why is not you know why is this not a major artist right um i don't know I, and and so i i spent a lot of years in the folk clubs and uh, Satellite Lounge and uh, seeing that kind of rockabilly, seeing... Um, it's funny, a lot of people don't remember that place. It was next door to Rockefellers. I saw Wilco yeah. there and Sunvolt, separate tours, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, those are the only two shows I ever went to there, but yeah. So spending a lot of time at those stages and seeing artists I had no idea about, just going because my friends were going and because I love music, it didn't really matter. Yeah. I guess. Um, I don't know that that so photography for me when the smartphone came out I started to take photos and because I would always go to Cactus Music or whatever I would take photos of these bands and eventually probably like a year or two in bands were asking me for these photos I want the hot can you give me the high res of this photo man and I would say, I took it in my cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> and I was sending them the photo and they could use it or whatever. And so probably like three years in, um, I ended up meeting the Suffers. And when I met the Suffers, um, I, I don't know. I saw them at uh, Warehouse Live in the small room. They were doing the canned acoustic cassette. And I was just kind of blown away by their energy and their vibe. and. I really didn't reach out to them after that show. I did my own thing and they kind of sought me out. And uh, I think we reconnected at the Orange Show when they performed at the Orange Show. And we just became friends. And they kind of took me in and said, hey, we kind of want you to take photos of our show. Um, and I'm like, well, I don't have a camera. And so through that conversation, I ended up, um, ended up selling something and buying a $500 camera off eBay. Actually, I went on Flickr. I went on Flickr and found out what um, Jay Dryden uh, was shooting with and uh, all these uh, photographers in Houston that were already shooting bands. And I just stole that and I bought the very cheapest, oldest model the of Canon. that Canon. Yeah. And I started from there. And then at that time, uh, Pete from Young Girls, who's working at Cactus, it's like, hey man, we're opening up for Kurt Vile at Walters. Do you want to come take a photo of our show? And I'm like, yeah, I will. And so that was my first shoot actually, was Kurt Vile's hair 
and a, a bunch of crappy photos of young girls. But I didn't end up getting, I had the camera set, I remember I had the camera set on auto the entire time, I was just holding the button, I had no idea what it did. And I just captured a few things um, and gave them to them and they were happy with it. And I was like, okay. And so by being taken by the suffers under their wing, and basically they gave me the opportunity to shoot wherever I wanted to, on stage, in the pit, whatever. And I kind of built that up. And I just, from there, started asking. I was approached by a couple of publications, actually, to shoot for them. And I shot for these very small publications. And uh, I ended up shooting Fun, Fun, Fun in Austin and uh, Austin City Limits. And uh, through friends, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like I've always decided to shoot for the artists versus for publications. Yeah, I think first. that's better, yeah. I, I feel like it is, I, because I'm shooting a, a, a set and I'm giving them almost everything that I've shot. Right. And I'm not worried too much about what a, I don't have to answer to anyone. Sure. Except the band. And I know that they're going to be grateful, especially the local bands, going to be grateful for whatever I give them at that point because we're kind of like almost neck and neck is what I always felt. Yeah. It's like I'm just starting, you know, you're building up your image. Um, yeah. I will tell you a thing that I've never told anybody. I might have told you this. But when I worked at a particular city paper, without saying their name, uh, I refused to use their photographers for shows and it wasn't anything against anyone but I'd watched yourself Derek and multiple other photographers but you two guys specifically coming from completely different realms in what you shoot but I would see a lot of the same shows and that's always intriguing but I would get told well blah 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 does this for a living and I'm like that's great but I want what these guys do which or I'm not going to go because every photographer has a technique I know yours I know Derek's I know Danny's I know Robert's and what attracts me to someone's photos is what they capture like you have a photo it's on your Facebook it's of uh, Peter uh Peter from uh, Peter Hook. Bauhaus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, from the Bauhaus, yeah. And it's one of the greatest photos. I mean, because the way the light captures, look on his face, it's in the middle of the set. And I'm to understand that show was pretty dark, right? Like, it was not the most There's lit. zero photo pit, so yeah. I had to be very respectful for the, the crowd. I think that's a lot what people don't understand is that they will see photographers in the pit a lot of times and they're like okay well they have all access and that for a lot of shows I mean just recently Courtney Barnett and a lot of others that like I have zero pit access so I'm walking through the crowd I'm holding a huge camera I'm tall and you know I'm trying to be as respectful as possible but yeah sure. that was a situation it was like I, I feel like Everybody I've ever worked for would say things. I had another employer that was like, "Why aren't you getting close enough?" I was like, "Well, if you want to get, if you want closer videos, drag your ass up here and you do it." Right. Because I'm not standing in front of people that paid for a ticket. I don't have to pay for a ticket. Yeah. And shooting a video and sticking my phone in your face. 
I'm going to be about as far as I can. I'm going to get as close as I can. Right. I'm not going to just jam it. Probably, oh, sorry, I just got to get this real quick. Yeah. Because as, as polite as you are, everybody's like, fuck that guy. You know? Yeah, I've 100% been that fan behind somebody trying to record the entire thing. Yeah. Oh, I've actually, <laughs> I've actually gone and stood in front of people and turned around and looked at their phone. You know? <laughs> I've done all kinds of things. I took a photo with a guy that was bumping us at TV on the radio, and I said, I just want to get my photo taken with an asshole tonight. You know? <laughs> uh, I, I don't put... Because I, I, I come from the world where there were old dudes at the back of the room ready to knock down the kids if they bumped into them. And the punk world that I came from, if somebody falls down, you pick them up. You know? Right. Everybody's respectful of one another. And there's not a lot of that music now, and... Go, try to get somebody kicked out in some of these rooms because they're shouting to someone in front of you and there's an acoustic set going on, the, the room won't do anything because they're probably potential alcohol sales or something like that. So I have to resort to some other method to be like, hey, be a decent human being or fuck off. But being tall helps. I think most people are scared of you when you're tall. But, <laughs> but I, I respect that you have this technique that every photo you've ever shot for me, I just like was like, at, those, at the drive-in, I mean... That record is terrible, but that performance <laughs> was as close to what I saw when I saw them at Electric Lounge, and the stage is about as big as a, the hood of a Honda Civic, you know? Uh, I always tell people it must have been like when Paul McCartney and everybody in London saw Hendrix, because yeah. I thought, well, I guess I can't be in a band anymore because I can't do that. I mean, it was like watching a heart attack. I, I had seen Fugazi, and they just... It's like Fugazi didn't exist after watching After Drive-In Live. It was so intense. And I'd seen other intense bands before, Drive Like Jehu, and bands that had a lot of energy, but nothing like this. And your photos, it's in a big room, it's on a giant stage. It's not, there's no way it should look, it should remind me of something that happened 20 where, years where before. Where was that? Was that Prevention a Center? Was there Vention? Oh, man. And that those photos immediately took me back 20 years. And that is a lot. So, well, yeah. So with that, I mean, is there ever a thing where you say, okay, this is going to be hard to shoot, or you look up photos or something, and you go, oh, this looks like this is not going to be intriguing, and it, I mean, like, what attracts you to shooting an artist? Obviously, Absolutely. the music comes first, so. Yeah, the music comes first. And... There have been very few artists that I'm going to cover or shoot that I don't really dig. Um, but I do. I do a lot of leg work before the show to figure out how, what the stage plot is, where I need to be, what other artists... So, for instance, when you got me into Shoot U2, not a big U2 fan, but I figured, you know, that's probably a cool opportunity. But I see these photos over and over and over I remember and so you me getting this, yeah. into that so I think this is interesting behind the scenes to shooting a major band so first and foremost you're at the very back of the stadium football they're, stadium mind right yeah. 70,000 capacity yeah these dudes standing next to me are holding birding cameras or birding lenses yeah there was right? a guy like, that looked like he should be in the Serengeti yeah, yeah. so I see all my other photographer friends throughout the country on Instagram posting basically the same photos of you too. And I'm like, okay, I'm going into this. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring something different. They almost make it impossible for you to do so because they don't let you shoot the first three songs like is typical. Is that, all right, U2 is allowing the fourth song, 
you're allowed to shoot the first you know 30 seconds of that and then we're stopping and then we're moving you know into this song and that song they want joshua tree they're gonna have a big joshua tree appear there and you're gonna get this image to me man that is just very it's like basically telling an artist to paint by numbers right yeah. it's like all right here it is yeah i know you're picasso but here's a paint by numbers and if you paint outside those lines you're out of the stadium because immediately after we shot you two we're escorted completely out and if we want to come back and finish you two's set we have to leave our gear which is thousands of dollars in our car and come back in not cool yeah so for me i would much rather uh shoot at a club like satellite where I can be respectful, I can shoot in a very dimly lit environment, but possibly capture something that's meaningful to that artist and 150, 350, I don't remember what the capacity of inside 250 room. inside, 800 outside. Right? Capturing that is super more important to me than ever shooting a bigger band like you two. So I'll tell you how that happened and why it happened. So one, I've always said, everything past 3,500 didn't worth seeing. You saw them in a small room, don't disappoint yourself seeing them in a big room. There's some artists that I can't see in a small room. Yeah. I saw Kendrick Lamar with Kanye. I've never seen him in a small room. So I saw him at Toyota Center and I saw him at the NCAA thing and I saw him at Day for Night. Yeah. I would have loved to see Electric Light Orchestra in a club, <laughs> but by the time they came around they were right. only playing stadium Absolutely. same with the police there's ours, ours like that I want I wanted to go to YouTube because I wanted to hear Red Hill Mining Town there's like two songs on Joshua Tree that you do the math these guys are old they're never going to play these songs these aren't hits what are the odds I'll ever hear these songs again right and I thought for you it was a you can hate you too but to be like well I shot you too it's not like going I shot Katy Perry. I don't dislike Katy Perry, and I would tell anybody that she has one of the most entertaining live shows I've ever... It was like watching the Grammys. 20 years from now, I don't know how many people are going to talk about Katy Perry. 20 years from now, people will still talk about you, too. Sure. They're the biggest band in the world. The stage... There were moments of that show that were amazing. Yeah. The fact that the video had zero delay. It was as it was happening, and it looked real. The films by Anton Corbin of that road when they switched from the tree to the film, right. looked like you were in the car. I mean, yeah. it was amazing. Production-wise, beautiful. Yeah. But I did kind of have the feeling of, this is probably not something you would normally do. So turning around, I feel like the biggest compliment any photographer can get, a live music photographer can get, is that someone outside of your uh, circle of friends, or even in your circle of friends, said, I saw an image and I was like, I need to know that band because of that image. That's what our purpose is as journalists. Yeah. Is not to necessarily document you 2 in their same format, but to bring in, you know, like, who is Blackie? <laughs> who is sure. Elago? Who, who are these artists that you're photographing? And why are they important to you? Because if they're important to you, They'll be, they could possibly be important to me. And I, I think that's the biggest compliment. I agree with that. I think that El Lago, I've told Lauren this. I talked to Lauren a lot. I discovered them off of a photo. I was like, who is this? Yeah. 
playing the right gear doesn't hurt, you know. What I mean? Right, <laughs> right. Old Mustang, I'd be like, well, these people know their gear, you yeah. know, like, uh, and. I would tell you that there are there's stuff you've shot that I just I can't the photos are so well done I, I I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head where, well I'll give you one you wanted to get into Bill Callahan and I knew Smog but I forgot Bill Callahan was a person like I just it just escaped my mind by the way now if you want to go I'm tight with his people but at the time I wasn't I couldn't get you had already bought a ticket but I yeah. couldn't get you a photo pass but I can get you one now but that was one where I like was oh right Bill Callahan's a damn genius I had yes. just kind of forgotten about it you know when he was a big deal there were or when he was coming up and he was writing some of the best smog stuff ever it's kind of usurped by this guy called Elliot Smith who we could not sure. believe was real <laughs> right you know I mean I've told the story a million times of hearing his self-titled record at Chris Simpson's apartment before listening to Wesley Willis' greatest hits and laughing so hard, I out of my nose slurpy on his sofa. But I, I saw him multiple times, and you know, I kind of I knew about Smog, but it just kind of went in one ear and out the other because I was just entranced by Elliot Smith, you know. And so there was discovery there by you going, I want to go to this show, you know. I, I'd forgotten that he. I was like, oh shit, he's still putting out records. I just all kind of came back and very prolific artist uh, has continually done so I think a couple years before that I had seen him at Mucky Duck which is very strange yeah it is <laughs> and I'm not sure what the connection is uh, there but yeah that, that San Antonio show was really really incredible you know I, I think it's I mean it's telling about who you are because you you know like there's a joke in uh, in a comics Netflix special where he says, oh, if you go down south, they'll say things like, God, don't make no junk. <laughs> and it's supposed to be a pick-me-up. But I don't think you've ever shot... Tra I've never seen, like, oh, that band's terrible. How could you go shoot them? So there's a lot of taste there, which I would say lends more towards your taste in music. I mean, you've shot all these bands. You've done a lot of shooting and social media correct for the suffers. Right. How did the book come to be? So, like, sorry, you should you should say the title, and I, I apologize. I don't know. I know the title, but I don't know who wrote the book. So, uh, Dana and Joni are—they uh, are actually tour guides here in Houston. We actually have tour guides in Houston, Texas, wow. um, and they work for a group called. Uh, well, their group is called Trip Chandler, and uh, they were approached by this. Um, company out of Germany that does guidebooks uh, all around uh, the world really. They started in Europe and they kind of covered all of Europe and then they hit the two major cities uh, New York and LA and they have expanded um, and so through that they actually found me um, through, I used to run a Twitter account called Being Houston which was a rotating uh, Twitter account where I would like schedule people from Houston to take over the Twitter account for a week. Oh wow! And uh, I think through that, it just they they found me there. Okay. And they just pitched several photographers 
and I did a phone interview with the uh, publicist from this uh, book company, and I guess they liked the way, you know, the, my vibe. I've lived in Houston my whole life, and I really felt like this was an opportunity for me to learn a lot more, and I absolutely did. I, I thought I knew a lot about this city, but it's not one of those guidebooks that is sort of like, okay, well, here's the water wall. Here's where Wes Anderson did the thing, you know. Here's the beer that, can house, yeah. Yeah, although some of that is in there. Sure. But I really learned a lot about um, the the strength of our suburbs. <laughs> Even though a lot of the, the map of where these places are are in loop, there's just so much cool stuff going on outside of that. And so the book's called 111 Places in Houston That You Must Not Miss. It's a long title, which I have to read off this book. But I met with, so for instance, I'll just pick two. So Ad Astra, which is a company in Clear Lake, which I was, you know, I was basically living within a mile from them when I moved to Clear Lake at 20. And they are, uh, there's an astronaut that heads it, and they are building rockets that uh, they're, they're re-evaluating the propulsion of rockets now. Rockets now in space kind of push satellites at a certain distance, and they expend their uh, fuel, and they're dead in the water, and they're trash. This company is actually, they have this huge vessel in which they uh, test the rockets inside this vessel, inside this strip center, <laughs> by the way. Um, and that they're trying to figure out a way to build a rocket that can replenish its fuel to go further. Okay. One instance. That's one place out of 111 <laughs> that you must yes, not miss. That I, that you I can go visit and they'll, and they'll tell you about it and everything? Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. It's, but it's not some place that you would technically, like, if I am, you know, visiting Houston, where should I visit? Sure. You know, someone would tell you if you're uh, interested in space, you're going to the Space Center or sure. whatever. This is not a place like that. Um, second place is, I feel like in the South that religion is super important. It's super important to me growing up in that. I still feel that I'm a Christian and I'm a believer that, you know, there's actually a Catholic church for the past I, and I'm, I'm sorry if I uh, flubbed the number of years he's been doing this, but there is a mariachi mass that goes on every Sunday at a Catholic church in Houston. And uh, these fellows are basically the choir. So okay. I don't know if you've ever been to a Catholic service, I have. but you know, it's kind of formulated and you have this, you know, amens and things like that. And those guys fill in the gaps. That's the most populated service uh, of every Sunday, of course. But, again, if you're not familiar with Catholic Church, they kind of transfer um, their pastors or preachers every few years. And he's been able to maintain this and allow those, or those preachers that have come in there and stood in this pulpit have agreed to let him bring his mariachi band wow. into the church every Sunday. And so I actually spent two Sundays with them, which is just incredible. Very, like, meek. It's exactly, if you were going to go to any church around here, except for maybe a mega church, and ask their, um, you know, the musicians in the band, 
they have that they're very meek and mild and just super rad guys um, and so yeah I, I would that's the kind of vibe that comes from this book it's kind of digging in to those places maybe you kind of overlook there's a boxing gym in uh, the third ward that has hosted Muhammad Ali the the gentleman that his son actually runs it now he um, brings in the youth from the third ward and trains them up and you know gives them kind of that athletic outlet for their lives but you walk into this place and it's sort of a museum of his life and what he's done and all the kids that he's kind of inspired to be athletes wow um, I don't know it just really opened my uh, view of our city and you know if you're gonna listen to any of the trip guides and things like that they'll say we're the most um, you know we have the most diverse population and all that I feel like this kind of digs in and gives you examples of that and says okay I've scratched the surface here and what's kind of cool about each one of the places is that they've kind of said alright so if you do look at this here are some other additional in the footnotes kind of places to kind of check out in that same area. Right. So driving in here to meet you here in the East End, there's the Maritime Museum. I know where that is, yeah. Right? It's right up the street, yeah. It's like one of those places, all right, Merit, what does that mean? And so what this museum is, is you walk through the history of shipbuilding and there's a, a guy that will walk you through he's an ex-military dude that will walk you through the earliest vessels that were built and walk you through through um, current day even the offshore rigs that make up a big part of our economy here in Houston sure um, it's an amazing just venture there's actually a museum in uh, Austin, the uh, Texas History Museum in Austin, that on the ground floor you'll start out with the Spaniards that came here and actually tried to plant their flag in Texas and all the way up and as you go up the museum, it kind of builds up into a modern day Texas. Oh, cool. This museum is built in the same style in that, you know, you've got the early the, uh, pilgrims that came over sure. um, to modern day. So the book is available. So hardback, hardback, paperback, and digital. It's uh, paperback and digital. And my suggestion is to go through somebody like a Murder by the Book or some find your local uh, bookstore, and they're able to order it. Okay. So even a place like Cactus Music is probably able to order this book. It's a good and idea, and it would help out a local business during the pandemic. To yeah. Totally. Yeah. You can order it on Amazon, but that's kind of like, in my opinion, a last resort. Yeah. Um, it's like buying a suffer shirt off Walmart.com. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And to go along with that, like during this time uh, when bands aren't touring because they can't, I've kind of spent my money, which is limited right now, to buying directly from bands. So buying a t-shirt, buying a hat, buying an album directly from bands is the single most important thing you can do. Um, I know it's super easy to click a button on Amazon and click a button on wherever and sure. buy, but... Um, I, because Bandcamp right. is such great people. I can tell you a million stories of things I wanted to do with them, and they said, we can't break, we do this, we have to break this rule, and then that would open the floodgates, and yeah. I, even though I was mad because they didn't do what I wanted them to do, I respect them for not breaking the rules for anybody. 
we don't if an artist has a Bandcamp, we don't use Spotify or YouTube. It's Bandcamp. Right. The link for the album review or for the song or whatever it is, uh, because it's the best. And I, I, yeah, I'm like you. I I bought a shirt from every indie label that I love. And I buy a lot of records. Same, you know. It's weird to live in a world that you live in the same world where you can email somebody and they'll just mail you the record. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, there are records. There's an artist. I'm not going to say who it is, but there's an artist that I, uh, I said, oh, well, I have all this already, but I don't have that. Let me buy that. She was like, well, how did you get all this? Like, your management or your label center to me. I said, but I want that. She's like, are you a Banger fan? I was like, no, I feel bad for not buying anything from you. You know? I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yeah, absolutely. So... Self-Release Songs is produced by David Garrick and closed captioned. You can hear new episodes every Thursday at closedcap.com. You can also stream new episodes. You can subscribe and you can follow us on all podcast streaming platforms. If you'd like to support us, you can also send us money at anchor.fm.